Good morning, everyone. It's good to have uh, Katie back from maternity leave leading worship for us this morning, so it's neat to have her back with us, and it's also good to see that I hear half a clap, so we'll go ahead and there we go. As Jana mentioned, we're finishing up our Whiteboard Wisdom Series, so you can use your message insert to follow along and draw what I'm going to draw on this whiteboard as we make our way through uh, the time this morning. If you were to ask most people to describe for you a time in their life where they have grown and matured the most, you would probably notice that with most of those growth spurts, they coincided or oftentimes preceded, were preceded by a difficult time in their life. The question I want to address this morning is, why does life often have to get so difficult on the outside before we begin to change on the inside? We get insight on this question in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Here's what it says in verses 16 through 18. It says, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly, on the outside, we are wasting away. Yet inwardly, we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So we're going to begin this morning with a, a box, and this box represents the outward you. Now, I know you're much more attractive than this. This is how we're going to represent you this morning. This is the visible you and the visible me. And of course, there is much more to us than just our physical appearance, what meets the eye. There is also a, an inward you. We're going to represent that again with a heart. This is what the Bible describes our heart as the, the center of us, the real core decision-making center of, of who we are, and it is invisible. Now, the visible you and me is temporary. We, we have a lifespan. We're here just for a period of time. And in case you forget this fact, your body will remind you as you age and as you gradually waste away. Uh, at the age of 56, I've got some more pains that remind me that my body is getting older. And if you're young, you will get to experience that in the future. And it'll remind you that you know, I'm just temporary. Uh, I'm not here uh, for, forever. And the purpose of this gradual decay is not just to irritate us, but it's to get our eyes off of what is visible and temporary and onto what is invisible and eternal. And that's important because God himself is both invisible and eternal. And that's the future that we're heading to, to, to meet him face to face in the next life. So the question is, how can the real internal but invisible you form a relationship with the real but also invisible God? And the answer is by faith. Faith is the ability to trust in what you cannot see. Sometimes people will tell me, well, I, I just don't have faith. Everybody has faith. If you're going to function in this life, you have to have faith. Uh, you may have faith in different things, but everybody has faith. You can't see everything all the time. You can't understand everything all the time. You, you need to have faith. If you're just going to step out your front door, you have to have faith. For example, <clears throat> you, uh, you probably have some money in the bank. You can't see that money right now, so you are placing your faith in that bank. You're, you're trusting that when you need that money, 
then the, the bank will, in fact, give you that money. Well, that, that takes faith. And if you're having questions about your bank, well, then what reassures your faith is that faith in the bank is backed by the full faith and assurance of the U.S. government. That's FDIC insurance. So you, you are backed by the full faith and insurance or assurance of the U.S. government. So you had to have enough faith, though, in the first place to begin to deposit your money into that bank. You, you had to investigate enough. You, maybe your parents taught you about your first bank account, but somehow you had to get to the point where you were willing to put that first dollar in the bank and leave it there and not be able to see it and trust the bank. That's just the way faith is. You, you have to do enough research to believe that this is a reasonable thing for me to trust in. And you take that first step. But when you take the first step, your, your faith is, well, it's in its infancy. It's, it's just beginning. And then over time, as, as you get more and more experience, well, then your faith grows because now you have experience, additional experience, not just research, but additional experience to back that faith up. So you've been to the ATM many, many times, and hopefully every time you've gone, you know, you, the money's there. You get your money out. Now, if ATM started drying up and people couldn't get their money, well, then they have what's called a run on the bank, and then there's a real problem because our faith is, is now in jeopardy. But over time, faith grows as we gain experience in what it is we've put our trust in. Trust in. And that's the same way it works in our relationship with God. That's how faith grows with him. You, you have to start with enough reason, enough evidence, enough rational understanding to go ahead and place your faith in Jesus Christ and repair your relationship with God. Now that, you don't want to just take a blind leap. You, you need to figure this out. You need to do the research to do that. But then as you continue, if you take that step, then as you continue to, to learn what God says in his word and do it, then your faith will grow. If you stop right there, if you just kind of open up the relationship with God through his son Jesus Christ and, and you never read more and you never do more, well, then your faith is, is going to be very, very weak and pretty easily dislodged. But if you learn what God says and you continue to do it, your faith grows as you experience the truth of what God says. Now, there's a big difference, though, between faith in a bank and faith in God. The big difference is the bank is a visible place you can go to, and God is invisible. And because of that, what tends to happen is our our awareness of our need to put our faith in a bank is, is pretty high. I mean, we really can't function in this world without having some banking relationship. But our, our sense of our need to have faith in God, well, that's, that's kind of low because he's invisible, and, and there's some real question as to whether there's much of a need to have a trusting relationship with him. And so faith tends to be backburnered as we deal with all of the more pressing, apparently pressing, and visible matters in our life like money and the other kinds of things. So we will push faith in God to the back burner. In response, what God tends to do is he will push in on our temporary world. He will begin to push in on that world. And he will bring trouble to us, visible trouble to us. Either he will allow the trouble to occur or he will bring it himself. And in the middle of this trouble, he is doing this to spur growth on the inside, to, to grow our faith. Because what matters most, as this verse says, is eternal glory. That's, that far outweighs everything. That's, well, that's eternal. This is just temporary. Now, glory, the word glory means something that turns your head, something that gets your attention because it's, 
It's so amazing. Now, what tends to turn our heads now is stuff, stuff that we can see. That's what turns our head. Recently, I saw a guy driving down the street in a, an amazing Lamborghini. And I was, I, the last thing I wanted to do was turn my head because I know one of the reasons he bought that car was to watch people's heads turn <laughs> as he drove by it. I just was not going to give him the satisfaction. <laughs> but then he revved that engine up, and I, I just, I couldn't, I mean, my neck just involuntarily went, <clears throat> and with everybody else, you know, we, we had our heads turned. That's kind of the idea behind glory. It's like, it's so amazing. You're just, what is that? And you have to turn your head and look. Now, I've actually had dreams about driving a Lamborghini. But I have to confess, I, don't, I can't remember a single dream uh, about God or, or really about heaven. And the reason is because, well, God's invisible. I've, I've never seen him, but I saw that car. And so it's hard to get things like that out of your mind. So how will we then ever see anything other than the temporary stuff that keeps turning our heads here, whether it's something like a car or, or something else. Well, the only, the only way we really have a chance to, to, to begin to turn our heads towards eternal glory and not temporal glory is whenever trouble begins to occur in this, li- this life, in temporary land, when trouble begins to occur. Because when trouble occurs here and now in our visible life, it, it takes the shine off of the visible. It, it takes the glory out of the here and now. And it, it opens us up to the... It doesn't force us, but it opens us up to the possibility of beginning to turn our head in, a, in an eternal direction, not just a temporary direction. So God will shake up our world to wake us up from our temporary slumber, our temporary dreams. Now, earlier in chapter 4 of this... Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we find a list of the four types of trouble that we all tend to face. Now, you can divide the trouble that you face in many different ways, but this is one of the ways that Scripture divides the trouble that we face into these four categories. And it lists them for us, and and we're going to use these four to represent the four sides of the box of our visible life that God uses to, to bring trouble in our life. So let me read it to you, 2 Corinthians 4, verses 8 through 9. These are the four types of trouble. We are, number one, hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Number two, perplexed, but not in despair. Number three, persecuted, but not abandoned. Number four, struck down, but not destroyed. So let's start with the one on the top, pressure. Pressure comes into our life. As it says here, we are hard-pressed on every side. Why every side? Well, the very nature of pressure requires a confined space. Pressure cannot occur, it cannot go up unless there's a confined space. So you put air in your tire and the pressure rises because the tire, the rubber in the tire, confines that air to a particular place. So the pressure goes up. It's the same thing in life. In order for the pressure to increase in our life, we, we need to be in a confined space. We, we need to be really painted into a corner of sorts. So God will either create this confined space in which pressure rises by, by bringing circumstances to bear in our life where, where we're hard-pressed on every side. We don't just have one problem. We've got this problem and this problem and this problem and all of these pressures from all sides begin to cause the pressure inside of our heart to rise. 
One trouble, well, that's a problem, but we can usually deal with that. It's, it's when multi-sided problems hit us that things really begin to get into a lot of heat and, and pressure inside of our heart. So God will either bring us, allow us to experience trouble that's, that's multi-sided, pressed on every side, or he will increase the pressure at the point of our commitments. You see, whenever you make a commitment, you narrow your life. It's, it's a good thing to do. It's appropriate to do. But if you get married, well, then there's some confined spaces in your life. It's very different than when you were single. If you have kids, well, you've got more walls around your life because your life is even, it's great, but you don't have as much freedom as you had before. Your, your life is more confined because you've made some additional commitments. You, you take on a job. Well, there's a whole chunk of your week that you don't get to do whatever you want with. There, there's, there's pressure that can come in those confined spaces. And so the pressure might go up in your marriage or it might go up with your kids or it might go up on your job. And the temptation at that point, whenever pressure comes, either at the points of our commitment where there's already walls confining us or it's multi-sided where it feels like the world is just closing in us, the, the temptation at that point is to run, is to get out of our commitments, to do anything we can to get away from the pressure. But if we do that, one of the key ways that God wants to grow us is lost. We lose an opportunity that, while it far outweighs the trouble that we're experiencing. You see, the gift of pressure is that it reveals in us the truth about us that most people would never see and we may not ever see. There, there's stuff inside of our heart that, that comes to the surface under pressure. Several of us on staff are training to ride our bikes to San Diego in a couple of months. Now, I use the word training rather loosely. We are going on rides occasionally. Um, last week, we were uh, doing a 40-mile ride to get ready for this, and we were just about three miles into the ride, and uh, I, was, I was feeling amazing. I mean, here I am, 56, and the other two guys I was riding with were in their 20s, and I was doing great. And so we were heading down PCH, we were heading south, and I just, I was feeling so confident, I just hollered out, hey guys, let's just go to San Diego now. I mean, it's 7.30 in the morning, we can do it, let's, let's just go now, I feel great. Thankfully, they laughed and didn't, we, we didn't do that. <laughs> because two hours and 30 miles later, I said something very different. Here's what I said. I said, guys, I'm spent. You go on ahead, I'll catch up later. What happened? Well, pressure happened. Three miles is a whole lot less pressure on the body than 30 miles. And it took 30 miles of pressure on my body for me to finally admit the truth. Yeah, I'm not ready to go to San Diego. I'm not in the shape I thought it was in. See, I, I had been riding very irregularly. In fact, I had not ridden in three weeks before that 40-mile ride. And that ride last week convinced me if we're going to San Diego, I need to train. I'm not in my 20s anymore. I can't just jump on a bike and go to San Diego. I'm going to have to train. And I have been serious about it this week, and I've got a serious plan now because we've got, I've got a couple months, and I'm concerned that I may not have enough time left. So I'm serious now about it. You see, th this is what happens. Same kind of thing happens to us internally. This is the effect that pressure has. We, we can feel pretty good about ourselves on the inside. We, we can feel like, you know, I'm, I'm pretty loving, I'm, I'm pretty mature, I'm, I'm pretty patient. I, I, I think, you know, yeah, of course I've got problems if someone asks, but right now I'm, I think I'm pretty awesome. That's my perception of myself. 
but then pressure goes up. And you know what happens? Sin gets squeezed out of our heart. The stuff that it's been there all along, but there really wasn't enough pressure to, to force it out of the invisible heart and into the visible world where we can see it and everyone else can see it. It turns out we're just not nearly as mature as we thought we were. The increased pressure forces us to be honest about our sin. And it motivates us to get more serious about putting in the work that we really need to put in if we're going to grow. You see, we all, we all operate with a degree of, of cushion in life. Margins between the, the truth about who we really are and the perception that we maintain on the outside. That's a cushion. That, that there's a margin between those two. And as long as the cushion is big, the real you can remain hidden from everyone, actually including yourself. We can be blind to some of the issues in our heart and, until pressure comes and, and our cushion is reduced and all of a sudden the yuck is forced out onto the surface. When pressure comes, it reduces that cushion. Now, cushions can take many forms. There's all kinds of cushions. You know, one of our favorite cushions, of course, is financial. There's nothing wrong with having a financial cushion, saving up or preparing. But one of the things that's true of a financial cushion is we just feel a lot safer with a more money in the bank than we do with less money in the bank. I mean, that's natural. Who wouldn't? The problem is, we may think that we're really trusting God, but in fact, we're actually more trusting in what we've been able to set aside. That's, that's really what we're standing on. God knows this. We may wonder about it, but we're not really willing to admit it, or we're not even aware of it. And then we hit some kind of fin financial bump, and some resources need to go towards this, or the amount of our cushion has shrunk for some reason. And then you know what you discover? You get to discover whether you really do trust God for the future or whether you really trust what's in the bank for the future. And that's not always a, a pretty sight to see. Again, it's a prudent thing to save up, but it, we have these cushions. And sometimes they prevent us from really dealing with and seeing some of the things that we really need to deal with. So God may reduce a financial cushion. Or maybe your cushion is relational. And what I mean by that is, you know, most of the people in your life are easy to get along with. And so you, you think, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty good-hearted person. I, I really do love people. And then you get a new boss that's just awful. Or, you know, you hit a rough patch in your marriage or uh, a crisis in your family erupts. And you thought you were pretty loving, and now all kinds of ugliness is coming out of this same heart that you thought, yeah, I'm pretty good. And you realize, boy, my love is just totally conditional. I, I, I've got a long ways to go to love the way God really wanted me to, wants me to love. Now, again, I could go on. There's all kinds of cushions. But when God brings pressure, his goal is to reduce the margin between your heart and the outside you so that the truth and come to the surface. And the sin can be kind of squeezed out and dealt with. Now, God won't crush you in this. His purpose isn't to crush you. It may feel like the world is against me. God is against me. He's going to crush me. That, that, that's what it says here. We're hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. When our heart is hidden behind a thick layer of comfort, faith in Christ just doesn't seem like much of a need or much of a priority to us. 
So God goes, the invisible God goes to work on the visible barrier that's between us, our heart, and him. He begins to squeeze on that. So that's side number one, pressure. Side number two is we are perplexed. Perplexed. We're confused. We, we don't know what to do. We're fresh out of ideas. This occurs whenever we encounter a problem or an issue that's beyond our ability to, to figure out or to understand. We don't know how to, how to move forward. The Greek word that was uh, used here, the New Testament was written in Greek, the Greek word that's used here for perplexity literally means no way forward. In other words, you're at a place and, and you, don't know how to, you don't know how to proceed. And it paints the image of someone standing on the bank of a wide and deep and swiftly moving river. And you, and you know you need to get to the other side, but it's, it's too wide and too swift and deep for you to swim. You, you can't wade across it. There's no bridges. There's no boat. There's just no way to get from this side to the other side. Now, can you think of a situation in your life that's like that right now, or maybe one that you faced in the past, where you, you just, you can, you can see where you need to be. You can see where, where things need to, to occur, but you just can't get there. And you've tried several things. You've been up and down the sides of the bank. You've been looking for opportunity, and, and you're, you're fresh out of ideas. You don't know what to do. And that's a very frustrating and helpless feeling because, of course, it's not just some random river that you're trying to cross. You know, that's the image. But that's, it's not just a river you're trying to cross. It's, it's, again, maybe it's your marriage that's stuck, and, and you just don't know what to do next. Or maybe it's your child that you just can't get through to. And I mean, you've tried everything. And, and you know where they need to be, but you can't get inside of them and make that happen. And so you're perplexed. Or maybe it's a personal problem that you keep having over and over again, and, and you've tried many different things, but you can't seem to fix yourself. You're fresh out of ideas. You literally don't know what to do next. You've exhausted everything that your heart knows. Every idea that you've got in here is, every truth that you've ever known is, is just inadequate. It's not enough to, to deal. You're fresh out of ideas. It's at this point that we are most open to listen to what it is that God knows when we run out of what we know. You see, if our approach to life is working, if what we know is, is adequate, and then we hear a truth from God's Word, the way we record that truth is, here's an idea from God. And we may agree that that idea is true. We may nod our heads to that idea. But because we right now don't need that idea, it just floats out there in the invisible world of ideas. Oh, another idea. It, it doesn't penetrate into our heart because we really don't need it. It's, huh, that's the truth, and I agree with that truth, and fascinating. It's just an idea out there. But when we are perplexed, what that means is we don't know. We don't know enough. We are confused. We've run out of ideas, and it's at this point that we are most open to acting on God's truth. And God uses our perplexity to drive his truth deep into our hearts. And we move from the point of something that we just agree with is true to something that we now know is true. 
because we're doing it. We're acting on it. God's truth moves from just a, a theory that we nod in agreement to, the, to a way of life that we now practice. But without perplexity, as long as we know everything, as long as we, we're, we have enough ideas in our heart to be able to handle every problem we face, then these ideas just remain, remain out here floating. We may be able to quote them. We may be able to tell people about them. We may agree with them, but they're not in here. Perplexity drives them into our hearts. They become a way of life. And what happens at that point is our despair begins to lift. What it says here is we are perplexed, but not in despair. Why? Well, because the way forward now is no longer limited to whatever we know. It's not limited to everything you know. And that what that means is you may face an insurmountable problem, but you realize, look, there's, there's, there's truth out there from the one who sees everything, the one who can make a way across the widest river, and he knows the way forward. Right now, I don't know. I, I don't know enough, but God does. And I'm going to seek after his truth, and I'm going to drive that into my heart. And so the despair lifts. There's hope. We have access to the one who knows all and who is never perplexed. The one who, who can cross any river. So that's side number two. Side number three is we are persecuted. This occurs when people turn on us. The, the word literally means to be harassed or rejected by someone. This occurs particularly not just when a random nameless person turns against you. You know, that, that can be irritating, but that doesn't really bother us that much because that happens. But this occurs when someone that we really love and someone that we really trust turns on us. When someone that, that has a place inside of our heart turns on us. Well, that hurts. That makes the betrayal painful. We, we can endure a whole lot as long as the people that we love and trust stick with us. But, but when they turn on us, I mean, it, it shakes us to our core. See, our hearts are not designed for isolation. Our hearts are designed to have people inside them that we really trust, that we really do love. A heart can't function very well all by itself. We need other people. But people are people. And we've all, if you've lived very long, you've let people into your heart, and they've betrayed you. They've turned on you. And you've experienced the pain of that. And persecution teaches us that there's really only one person that we can put our full weight on and that we can really, really trust. And that person is Jesus Christ. What we discover is that he is the one that belongs in the very center of our heart. Because he will never abandon us. He will never forsake us. That's why it says we're persecuted but not abandoned. There's all kinds of people maybe inside of our heart that are turning on us, but Jesus will never leave us. He'll never forsake us. 
Now, we might believe, if you're a follower of Christ, you probably would nod again in agreement with where does Jesus belong inside of our hearts? Well, at the very center. He, he belongs at the anchor position. And everything and everyone else should revolve around him in secondary positions. But because we can't see Jesus, what we usually do is we put someone that we can see at the very center of our heart. And we put Jesus somewhere in orbit. Now, you may not think that's true of you, but you may not have an accurate perception of the positioning of what's really going on in our heart. And whenever you put someone else, a person, in the center of your heart, well, you become very, very vulnerable. You become dependent on them as the anchor of your life. You see, if someone's in your heart and they turn on you, that, that's painful. That hurts. But if they are at the center of your heart, that, that will destroy you. That will upend you completely. And so when people hurt us, it is an invitation for us to move Jesus to the very center of our heart. He may have been over here or over here or somewhere else, but when persecution comes, that pressure convinces us, you know, people don't really belong at the very center of my heart. Only Jesus belongs there. How, how do I do that? How can I move him towards the center? We begin to work on that. You see, because only Jesus can love unconditionally. Only Jesus can take you and all of your imperfection and have his love for you never be tainted by anything you do or anything you say. No person can pull that off. Only Jesus can do that. And with him at the center of our life, anchoring our hearts, we are now for the first time free to unconditionally love people around us. Without Jesus at the center, every relationship is a deal. You know, you, you may go further in the deal than other people, but every relationship is, okay, once you get to this point, the deal is off and the relationship breaks. But if Jesus is at the very center, then you don't need people to love you. You want them to love you. It's painful if they don't love you, but you don't need them to love you because that question has already been answered. Jesus is at the center. And so persecution is a reminder to move Jesus towards the center, and then you can assign people to take their rightful place inside your heart. See, sometimes people get hurt, and they kick everyone out. I'm never going to get hurt again. The way you do that is I'm never going to care about anyone again. That's another problem with the heart. With Jesus at the center, people can then take their rightful position in a secondary position after Jesus. So that's side number three. The final side is calamity. Just a fun bunch of words, isn't it? Calamity strikes. What this says here in the text is we are struck down. What that means is we are, we are blindsided with enough force to just upend us, to put us on our backs. It's, it's just sudden calamity that knocks you off your feet, puts you on the ground, but not destroyed. God allows this to happen to us. Again, his intention isn't to crush us. His intention isn't to destroy. It feels like you've just been destroyed, but you're not. You're just on your back. God's purpose is not to destroy you, but to humble you on your back. You see, <clears throat> what calamity tends to do is it tends to push pride out of the human heart. 
it's hard to be really arrogant when you're laying on your back. It, it doesn't lead to arrogance. And arrogance is the number one barrier in our relationship with God. Because arrogance basically says, I don't need God. Really, I don't need really anything else. I, I am sufficient. I have enough resources. I have enough ability. I, I, with my own will and power, can make the future happen. I mean, that's just arrogant. So God says, okay, it's time to end up on your back. And something happens and the legs go up in the air and boom, you're on your back. Nothing like a sudden fall to humble us. And it's on our backs that we maybe for the first time are forced to look up. On our feet, we don't need God. We don't need to pray. We're handling life. But on our backs, we need God. It's also on our backs that we are maybe humbled enough for the first time to ask other people to help us. Oh, that's so humbling to do. It's one of the reasons, again, we don't, we don't grow that much is because we don't, we don't humble ourselves and ask people for help. We, we're not honest and say, you know what, I, I'm struggling, I need help. And so we, we just don't grow. Notice the pronoun that's attached to these four forms of trouble. The pronoun is we. We, Paul writing here says, are hard-pressed. It's not I am hard-pressed. We, he, he's with a group of people. We're, we're hard-pressed. We're perplexed. It's not just I'm confused. No, I'm in this with other people. We're persecuted. We're struck down. You see, the point is this. When trouble comes, you don't want to go it alone. Whenever you find trouble closing in on your heart from all different directions like this, the last thing you want to do is isolate yourself. The last thing you want to be is, I'm under pressure. I'm perplexed. I'm persecuted. I'm facing calamity. No, you, you need as quickly as possible to get to a we position where you're, you're telling people on the outside, here's what's going on. I need help. You see, if someone else knows when trouble comes, then the chances that you will grow from that trouble go way up. If when trouble comes, you clam up, the chances are that that trouble will be wasted and you won't grow a bit. That's, that's, that's probably what's going to happen. Why would you waste all of that pain and trouble? Just to be arrogant and not humble yourself and say, look, I need help. When trouble comes, let people know that you can trust. You know, I, I almost didn't tell you about the bike ride to San Diego. You know why? You know why, right? I wasn't so sure I wanted to do it. But now that I've said it, you know what? I'm going to have to figure out how to, how to actually do this. Why? Well, I know not meanly, but now what's going to happen is over the course, probably around the two-month mark, someone's going to remember. I know most of you will completely forget, but some of you will remember. And you'll come up and say, so how was that San Diego bike ride? And then I'm going to have to have an answer. And if the answer is, you know, I just wimped out, well, I'm a guy, and I, I don't, I don't want to say that. So now I have to train. Now I have to go to San Diego. If it kills me, I'm going to San Diego. <laughs> the point is this. If you really, really, really want to grow, then when trouble comes, tell those you can trust who can help you. Then you'll grow. So again, let's review. Pressure will expose your sin. Perplexity will drive God's truth from idea into your heart. 
Persecution will move Jesus towards the center of your heart, and calamity will expose your pride. What a tremendous lineup of gifts. We don't see them as gifts, but they're, well, they, as Paul says, they outweigh everything else. So don't lose heart. Why does it start with that? Well, it's because when trouble comes, what's our first temptation? Oh, no. When trouble, trouble comes to me, I'm not, oh, I wonder what I'm going to learn. <laughs> wonder what kind of yuck inside my heart is going to get squeezed out today. That's never my response. My response is always, no. And I'm tempted to get discouraged. I'm tempted to lose heart. We're, we're tempted to lose heart when we face trouble because, well, we miss the point of what God's doing in our life. What we really think, we really think the point of our life is our success and our comfort. That's what we're convinced of. I mean, that's, that's our culture. And we've been raised in this culture, and so we think that's what life is all about. And frustratingly, God sometimes doesn't seem to agree with that. We think the point is our success and comfort. But the point, hear this carefully, the point of this temporary life is to get ready for the eternal life. That, that is the point. Whatever level your comfort level was here, whatever level your success level here, that's secondary. Getting ready for eternity is what's really going to count. So if we keep fixing our eyes only on this life, then what's going to happen is this outward wasting away that we're experiencing physically is going to become an eternal wasting away, irreversible wasting away. So we, we have to turn our eyes now. We, we have to fix our gaze on the things that really matter, that, that last for all of eternity. We have to get our eyes in that direction. Now, we're going to still have to go to work and deal with stuff here. The idea is fixing. We, we can't stay fixated on the temporary. We, we've got to live now in light of eternity. Now, in the next life, the eternal things will be obvious. That will be what will turn heads. Right now, eternal glory doesn't turn any head because you can't see it. In the next life, it'll be obvious. But, of course, by then, it's going to be too late. We have to turn our heads now. So God gives us the gift of trouble to lift our gaze beyond the here and now and focus on what's going to last forever. So let me read this in closing. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18 again. Therefore, we do not, we do not lose heart. If you're facing trouble, it's going to be real tempting to lose heart. Keep struggling to not lose heart. Don't give up. Though outwardly, we are wasting away. Yet inwardly, we are being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles. Now, they don't feel light now, but in light of all of eternity, we're going to look back and say, what was that? Oh, yeah. When I struggled with cancer for those five years? Yeah, so light. Now it's oh, our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen, well, that's temporary. But what is unseen, that will last forever. That's eternal. So here's three next steps for you to take to apply this. This is on the bottom of your listing guide, right under that amazing diagram that you just grew. Number one, identify which side is causing trouble. Now, if it's coming from all sides, just identify the one that's causing the most trouble. 
if there's no trouble in your life right now, don't go looking for it. It will find you. Just be grateful. Pray for those who are encountering trouble. But if you're encountering trouble, try to identify which side is causing the most trouble. Then number two, identify what God's purpose might be. Now, I've already given you the purposes, but, but in your life specifically, maybe what idea do you think God might be trying to drive into your heart? Or what way does Jesus need to move, move, move more to the center? Or what sin is being exposed? Or how can you advance humility over pride? Who can you tell? Try to figure out what God's purpose might be in the particular trouble you're facing. And then, here's the big one, pray with somebody about this. Someone you trust. I would encourage you to just call them up this week and just say, hey, you know, I wanted you to be aware that this, this is going on in my life. And if we could get together, I mean, if over the phone you have to do it, fine, but if you can get together just for coffee or something or someplace, get away, you know, go for a walk in the park or something, and just take a few minutes and just pray and just say, could you pray for me about this? Just that act kind of, it takes, it takes humility, but it gets you out of yourself. And God will grow you through that. Let's pray together. Father, we, um, we've never seen eternity. We have ideas about it, but all we know is what's visible. And so, of course, our, our tendency is then to spend our days and our months and eventually our entire lives just only focused on the things that will only last in this life. I pray that you would help us to, to lift our gaze beyond this world. We thank you for the gift of trouble. Uh, we don't ever rarely or we rarely accept it as a gift, but we recognize that it really is. Because we need, we need to take these years and use them to get ready for forever. So I pray that you'd help us to, to grow and learn from the trouble that you bring and not get angry at you and mad at other people and, and try to short-circuit what you're doing. We need your help. We need your help to grow. We ask for that help, and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.